slash and cast. All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor and author Armin Shimmerman about Shakespeare, Dr. John D., fiction, the stage, deep space, Buffy, and more. Also, at one point during the interview, Armin asked me about a specific event regarding John D. and him investigating a few wax dolls that were found and thought to be a sort of mystical attack on the queen. Well, I wasn't able to find the story in any of my sources. However, thanks to Jordan Cole at the John D. database, we were able to track down the tale to several sources. So a thank you is in order to Jordan. Thank you very much. And I know it's always fun to solve a mystery. So anyway, without further ado, here you go. You worthless, tiny-eared fool. Don't you know the first rule of acquisition? Yes, brother. Then say it. Once you have their money, you never give it back. Exactly. Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Just so we have a platform to jump off of here, Armin, why don't you take us back in time to when you were a youngster? You know, were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I was a fort builder. I probably was a troublemaker. And certainly I was a book reader. I'm sure there were other things I was doing back then as well. But probably book reading was the most important thing I did. Depends how far back. When I was six, I remember building forts. When I was 12, I was reading books, and probably that until now, I was a troublemaker. Books have always been a part of my existence. In fact, in college, I was an English major. I thought that I would go on to do something in that field. I once took an aptitude test when I was about 16, and they told me the best job possible for me was librarian. I still think that's possibly something I should have done at one time or another. You know, fun, oddly enough, that's something I've always wanted to do as well. Librarian just seems super cool to me growing up. <laughs> I get lost in libraries. One of the greatest discoveries I ever made, which I use in my book writing as well, was I got lost in a library college and uh, started at 10 and, and I was reading a book and before I knew it was five o'clock. I don't know where the hours passed, but uh, <laughs> I was just in pig's heaven uh, reading that. Do you have a preferred genre or author you went to early on? No, I read a lot of books, a lot of classical literature. I didn't really read plays until I was in high school. 
but I read a lot of young people's literature. I tended to be a somewhat of a social misfit, so reading was the go-to thing when I wouldn't get to pick for baseball teams or something like that. <laughs> Certainly, I never got picked for a basketball team, that's for sure. Reading was a great pleasure for me, and I was surprised in the latter part of my life that I actually started to write and put some of the things that I had assimilated into my own handwriting never tinkered around with any short story writing or anything until you dove into your novels later on? When I was 12, I wrote a poem that got published. It got picked to be published, and that was my first outing as a writer. I didn't write any more poetry after that. No, no short stories. I think as a young man, with the help of a friend, we wrote a short play, but nothing to write home about. Couldn't have been more than six or seven pages, so it, it wasn't anything meaningful. I put all my artistry into performance when I had a lot of time on my hands while I was performing. Someone put the idea of writing into my head. That became what I did. So while we're on those uh, early years, when you think back, which films and shows and such stick out that sort of helped mold your creativity, so to speak? Well, certainly I think science fiction helped mold my creativity. Ironically, I was a huge fan of Star Trek when I was in my teens. It's wonderful that it came full circle and I became part of the franchise. Good films, films that had good writing in them and good acting in them uh, were ones that I was happy to see. I, was, I didn't like the, the sort of out-and-out -out comic ones, the they weren't my metier, but serious films, especially what they were doing in the 80s, wonderful films from the 80s. That's what I became interested in. So how about your parents? Were they involved in the arts at all? Is that sort of how you got ushered that way? My father was an immigrant from Poland. He wasn't involved in the arts at all. I think the first play he ever saw was one that I was in on Broadway and didn't much care for that. He told me. <laughs> and uh, my mother was interested in the arts, but never a practitioner of the arts. She introduced me to museums and paintings and things of that sort, but she never did anything like that. Ironically, my first cousin has become a, a well-known painter in Cleveland, so the two of us got the gene from somewhere. I, I know both she and my maternal grandmother her paternal grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was an outsized character, and I know she probably influenced my going into performance somewhat because she was so larger than life, in a good and bad way. <laughs> What's your cousin's name, the painter? Her name is Leslie Discount. She's been rising to fame in the last couple of years in Cleveland. I'm always amazed by folks who can draw or paint. It's always been something that just seems otherworldly to me because I can't draw a stick figure. Me too. I can't draw a stick figure either. I wish I had that talent, and I'm truly amazed when people do do that. Although, I don't think my cousin uh, does much with stick figures. I think <laughs> it's impressionistic putting up paint swatches together, and she does it very well. I'm sure she has some paintings that are realistic, but the ones that I tend to see and appreciate the most are just where she puts colors together in the most marvelous way. That's awesome. I'll have to look her stuff up. Please. So, Armin, do you have a eureka moment that you can point towards where your own personal interest sort of arose in the arts, maybe a specific play you saw or something? I do. I um, was dragged into acting in high school by my high school teacher. His name was Mr. Jellison, Gene Jellison. And he cast me in a play called The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And I think in high school you did three, maybe five performances. I don't remember. But I do remember in one of those performances, stepping on stage, and an hour and a half went by, and I suddenly realized that an hour and a half had gone by, 
and I don't remember living that hour, hour and a half. I, I was so immersed. I thought I was anyway. I was so immersed in playing the character that all reality had seemed to have disappeared. And I was just caught up in what I was doing as the character. And that was the first drug, if you may call it mm -hmm. that, that got me addicted to performance. I remember thinking that was swell. And I wanted to do it again and again. And I... Over the course of many, many years, I've only been able to recapture that sort of thing a handful of times. And I've done thousands of performances. Losing oneself for an hour and a half hasn't come very often. But it was an aha moment. And I went, oh, this may be something I want to do. So was that your very first time on stage? Yes and no. It was really the... I did a play in junior high school of 12 Angry Men, but I don't remember that very well. And I... I don't really count that, but I do think The Crucible was the first serious acting that I had done, and it became a way of life for me. And I've been enormously lucky that what I've been able to do and achieve and secure far beyond anything I ever imagined when I first started. So what do you ascribe that, that feeling to that you're talking about, that, that in-the-zone feeling? How do you get there, and you're always chasing it, I assume, after that first time? Yeah, how did I get there? I don't know. I think... I became so fixated on what the other actors were doing and so fixated on what my character needed and was experiencing that I forgot about myself and only thought about my character's needs and when what he was experiencing. Very hard to get in that zone place. Really very difficult. There are moments when it happens, absolutely, but never that long hour and a half length of time where you totally forget. Now, that's got to include being off stage as well. It's got to include when you step off stage during the act break or something. But I remember that particular, I didn't remember any act break. I didn't remember stepping off stage. I didn't remember any of that. Only remember being John Proctor for all that time. And then suddenly Armin came rushing back at the end of the performance. When it comes to roles and opportunities, and I've been enormously lucky. You need talent to succeed in our business, but that's a given. But you also need a great deal of luck. And I've been fortunate to have had that luck. I don't know which of my parents gave it to me, the luck team, <laughs> but I'm very grateful for that genetic uh, gift. So does your approach to a role differ depending on whether you're on stage or on screen? Yes, yes, very different. There are different tools and different approaches. It took me a while to learn the difference because I started out as a stage actor. I went from high school to college to professional theater in a blink of an eye. I really didn't have any gaps. As a professional theater actor, I started in my mid-20s pretty much on Broadway. I pretty much started my professional career as an actor on Broadway. And I learned to be a little larger than life on stage, especially with theaters of that size. It was a learning curve to moderate what I was doing in order to act comfortably and believably in front of a camera. I'm still learning to do that. I'm still learning less, 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 less. At this point in my life, I do much more theater acting than I do TV or film acting. I'm sure you're still active in theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I did a play this past summer, a very popular play called The Play That Goes Wrong. I did that in Kansas City. And prior to that, I did uh, three Shakespearean plays in Utah. I helped run a theater in Los Angeles. I direct plays as well. So I'm very much involved with the theater. The theater is where I feel the most comfortable. It's always, I'm a little fish out of water when I'm in front of a camera because I still have, don't believe that I've gotten it to the place where it should be in front of the camera. Is it something along the lines of, I've spoken with a lot of actors who consider themselves theater actors and they have a trouble toning themselves down for the cameras that 
what you would that's, say you yeah feel you're that, that's exactly right and, and and i don't know about the others but for me I just don't trust myself enough to be simple the moment you want to do something is the moment you're too big so if you can trust to just be simple just think what your character needs as opposed to showing what your character needs that's the difference but it, on stage, you can't just think it's too small for the stage. So you have to show people what you're thinking. And although I'm constantly relearning that lesson over and over again, it still hasn't stuck well enough for me to be comfortable in front of the camera. Out of all your stage roles, what would you say are your personal favorites if you had to pick a handful? Well, I am by nature a Shakespearean scholar. So the ones that I would pick are the Shakespearean roles. And I've done about, I would say, a third of Shakespeare's canon, some plays many times. Roles like Polonius, which I recently did as in Utah, or Claudius, which I haven't done for a while. I've done that several times. I did enormously successful Fool in King Lear at the Guthrie Theater, which I'm very proud of. And that was my second attempt at playing the Fool. Those are the ones I'm most proud of because they took a lot of work, a lot of thinking, a lot of rehearsal on my part. I rehearsed a lot by myself as well as with the cast. The results, I think in both the Fool's case and Polonius, I found something that was unique with both of them that people hadn't seen before and still true to the script but very different than the traditional performances for those roles. And that's what I aim for now with Shakespearean roles, is to be true to the script, absolutely, but to, to really delve in and see if there's something there that other people have missed. And sometimes I've gotten very lucky and been able to do that. Just that I'm reminded of your avatar, who looks a little like this. Yeah. Uh, who is the lead character in my novel, so. Oh yes, I definitely have questions about that. While we're on the subject, I pulled this out because uh, Lisa informed me about your novels, and I looked into them. My wife got me this last Christmas. I don't know if you can see what this is, but this is the... Oh, Dr. John D. Yeah. yeah. And what is the collection about? Uh, what is it? The complete this... uh, mystical records of Dr. John D. Yeah. Yeah, I got the whole thing right there. I've actually done Very a whole... And I would love to have that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I married a good one. So while we're on the subject, how did you come across Dr. D.? Well, I'm embarrassed to say I should have known about him earlier because, as I said a moment ago, I am a Shakespeare scholar. I've been studying not only Shakespeare, but his period of time for a very long time. I would have guessed The Alchemist, the the play is where you would have heard of him if I were guessing. Exactly. Or, or Prospero, for that matter. Mm. But I, I didn't learn of Dr. John Dee until I would say the middle 90s when a, a, a wonderful writer named Michael Scott, who was my co-writer on my first novel, the Merchant Prince novel. And he had known about Dr. John Dee. And in fact, he's a prolific fantasy writer, and, and he has written about John Dee, too. And he introduced me to that wonderful man. And uh, if I could turn the computer sideways, which I can't, you would see that I have a whole bookcase full of John Dee books about him, books that he's written that I've been studying for a great long time. I've become almost as familiar with him as I am with, you know, what my brother does for that matter. But Michael, while we were getting my wife and I were in Ireland visiting, and we visited with Michael, who lives in Ireland. He introduced me to John Dee at that time, and, and I've been studying him ever since. A couple of years ago, I made the trek out to Mortlake mm. just to see where he lived, and I think that all that exists of his house now is, is one single wall. It was, you know, it's like going to some hallowed place, and I, I'm sure I made a sacrifice of some sort. <laughs> of, you know. Just 
stumbling across the story of John D. and Edward Kelly, anybody who's interested in the odd and the occult will just be sucked into that. When along yeah. that uh, line did you start to tinker around with your ideas for your novel? Well, before writing the um, Illyria trilogy, I started out with Michael. We, we came up with this idea for a trilogy called The Merchant Prince, which I completed First book I completed with Michael in collaboration with him. And then the uh, second one, Michael disappeared. I did the second one in collaboration with Chelsea Yarbrough, a wonderful fantasy writer. And then the third book I wrote by myself. So that was in the 90s, turn of the century. I did those three books during that period of time. But at that lunch in Ireland that I just referenced, Michael suggested this idea of Shakespeare and Dee together solving crimes along with the characters from the various plays. That just hibernated for a number of years, just sitting in the back of my head. And then one day in a trailer somewhere waiting for it to be called onto the set, I began to type in my computer. And that was the start of God knows how many words in the Illyria trilogy. Wow. So since this was your first time sort of venturing on your own into writing, what's your process look like? You're a big outliner? Do you just try to go with the flow? I go with the flow. I know where I want to end and I know where I want to start. And what happens is because I'm very picky about research and that everything has to be right for the period, I do a lot of research on the period for the novels. And also I do the same sort of research when I do period plays. So when I do a Shakespearean play, I'm very specific about what every little thing means. And not only what it means, but what its connotation is as well. Sometimes we say something, but there's more to the connotation than there is to the actual words. That happens in Shakespeare's plays as well. I'm constantly looking for the, the underbelly of what's being said there. So it, while I do my research, invariably I run across a piece of information, a little nugget of information that intrigues me. And somehow I go, that should be in the novel somewhere. And I incorporate that into the novel. And because I've done that, that leads me to something else, which leads me to a second, third, fourth, fifth, ad infinitum things. And slowly things get written and rewritten and then rewritten again and then possibly <laughs> rewritten one more time. In all your research for Dr. D, is there a nugget that stands out to you that maybe you could share with us that you included in your books that was interesting or something that caught your yeah, eye about him? This was in research for a, a TV show and not for the novels, although it, it eventually ended up. It very much ended up in the novels. I'd already written the Merchant Prince books, and I was beginning to write the Illyria books. Putting that aside for a second, I was cast in a TV show, I believe it was called Criminal Justice. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Anyway, <laughs> I was playing a character based on a real-life American person who would take himself into college, university libraries, and steal some of their most precious books. He didn't sell the books. He didn't make any profit off of it. He simply wanted them for himself. The executive producer of this TV show uh, said to me, you're playing this guy. There's a book I want you to read that has a big chapter about him in the book. Uh, it was a book about people who adored books, bibliophiles. So I read the chapter about the character and, and was, you know, inspired by that as for the role that I was about to play. But there was a chapter in the book about John Dee as well, which the executive producer never cared whether I read or not. But I read it, of course. And there's a little section in that chapter where it talks about Richard II, which is one of Shakespeare's plays, being inspired by a French poem called Trésan, and that a lot of the language from Trésan, translated into English, can be found in Richard II. There was a little star, a little asterisk after that paragraph, and I went down to the bottom of the page, and it said, 
Trayton is the inspiration for parts of Richard II. However, the only person who had a copy of Trayton, the French poem, in England was Dr. John Dee, which meant that Shakespeare had to be going into John Dee's library in order to read that poem. One doesn't know how much French Shakespeare had, but he would probably have needed someone to translate it for him as well. So I'd already concocted this relationship between Shakespeare and Dee, and there are many other actually minor references where they could have come together. But I remember that one was, oh my God, what I cocked up with, what I cocked with my brain actually might have happened, that they might have actually been in cahoots together. And in my novels, my Illyrian novels, are an attempt to sort of say John Dee might have been the person that educated the small town kid from Stratford-upon-Avon, educated him enough to become the English language's best playwright. Anyone who writes enough can usually tell you that strange things could possibly happen. Maybe scenes or entire entire scenes or characters that come to life or play themselves out. It's very it's very odd. Yeah, there's other things. I, I have another book uh, over there somewhere that possibly John Dee was the architect for the Globe Theater, that the angles supposedly in the original Globe Theater are all 72 degrees, which is a magical number. Possibly John Dee was the architect for that. And of course, there is a great swath of knowledgeable people who suggest that John Dee is the uh, prototype for Prospero in The Tempest. People often ask me, are you going to write anything else? And I've been, I've been dabbling with an idea that, of an incident that happened in John Dee's life, and I'm, I'm just actually trying to find out what year it took place. Maybe you can help me. The Queen, and I believe the Duke of Leicester, wanted John Dee to investigate these puppets that were buried under some cow dung. They were like voodoo dolls and they had pins in them. They wanted to find out who had done this. They thought it was a threat to the queen's life. And I've been looking through my books in the last day or two, but I can't seem to find the year when that took place. If you happen to know that, I would love to know that. Off the top of my head, I do not know that, but I could probably find out in one of these books I have. So I'll check after this. I'll pass the info along to you if I, if I do come up with that. But just switching back to uh, acting briefly. How did the transition from stage to screen happen for you? It was an accident like most things in life. I was doing a play in New York City where, where I, as I said, I was working on Broadway. I was also working in, in regional theater at that time, two regional theater or theaters outside of New York. And But this theater was off Broadway. I don't remember the name of the play. The agent called while I was in rehearsal for the play and said, we have an audition for you for TV pilot and you have time to take off from lunch or so and do the audition. And I did. And I didn't think twice about it. Really, I never thought with a face like this, I, I never thought that I would be on TV or film. I, I was quite sure that uh, my life would always be in the theater. But I went and did the audition. A couple of days later, the agent called back and said, they, they want to see you again. I said, well, it's going to be hard because, you know, it only happened during lunchtime. And he said, no, they want to fly you out to Los Angeles to audition for the producers and the network for this pilot. They offered me a good sum of money. Not a great sum of money, but a good sum of money. Good enough, right? <laughs> no, no. There, so there was nothing I could do but say yes. And so they shipped me out to Los Angeles, and I auditioned for this TV pilot called Bulba. And lo and behold, I got cast in Bulba. And I worked on the pilot for about 10 days. It was very different than working on stage. And the salary was much, much better. But I sort of got seduced by the work, the work hours, for one thing, and the amount of money they paid me. 
and fun. It was a great deal of fun. Yeah. Uh, I was working with a lot of stand-up comics in this Bulba pilot, and uh, I laughed for the 10 days, just laughed continually. I, I, since I was not a stand-up comic, they realized I was the person they had to tell the jokes to because <laughs> I wasn't going to come back and rival them. And when I came back from those 10 days in Los Angeles, I told my future fiance, now my wife of 42 years, that maybe we should try LA because my God, things were so fantastical. And so we moved out a year later to Los Angeles only to try it. We were going to stay for six months. It is now 42 years plus, maybe 41 years plus. I'm still here, you know, waiting to go back to New York. (laughs) That's how I I got seduced into it by Boba. There you go. (laughs) Before we go too far, you reminded me, Armin, you worked with a friend of mine on arena in 1989 he jeff farley did makeup on that movie and I, I told him i was gonna be talking to you he told me to say hello and he gave me a picture to share with you of you two from behind the scenes i'm going to sh- uh, share my screen with you so i can show you it to sure, you sure yeah yeah weasel is i always say weasel was the prototype for quark that you know <laughs> used to uh, lots of makeup and jeff and i used to show up in the building outside of rome was shot in rome at Four in the morning, nobody else was there, and he'd start his magic, and I'd just sit there and go over my lines. There was a wonderful recurring character on Deep Space Nine. Uh, the actor's name was Mark Alimo, and Mark also was in Arena. And Mark, actually, the character he played in Arena was very similar to the character Goldicott that he played in, in Deep Space Nine. And Weasel, as you can see from that picture, had a lot of in common with Quark. It was sort of a, our apprenticeship for the future science fiction roles we would do later on. We were in Italy for about two and a half months. We got two weeks off for Christmas where we didn't have to stay in Rome. Everyone should be so lucky as to get a, a paid vacation in Italy. <laughs> Did you meet Charles Band any, uh, while you were there? Was he on set uh, at all? No. I may have met him when I auditioned for the role. He may have been in the room, but he never, that I know, came to Rome. So I can't say for sure. I just wanted, I had to say hello for Jeff. Me and give him. him my regards back. I will, definitely, for sure. He gave me a gift when we were doing it that I still have. It's around here somewhere. It's a a mold, a head, similar to this, actually, but in a different material of Weasel, and I still have that and remember the, the good times, really good times we had. <laughs> yeah, Jeff is modest, but he's a master at what he does. Yes, he is. So my first experience with your work, personally, was your role as a Principal Snyder on Buffy. Mm-hmm. Was that a typical audition for you, or was it a right place, right time situation? Well, ironically, it wasn't wasn't an audition. I auditioned for Flutie, which was the principal before Snyder. I didn't get that one, obviously. My friend Kenny got it. And then when they killed Kenny off, when they killed Flutie off, I got a phone call from the agent saying they want to use you as Snyder, as the new principal. And I had been watching the TV show because of Kenny. I like Kenny. I found Buffy to be an interesting show, so I began to watch it not just for Kenny, but, but for the show. I was tickled that they wanted me to play this new principal on Buffy. But at that time, I was already shooting Star Trek Deep Space Nine and doing some other shows as well. And when I got on set the first day, I said to Joss Whedon, I don't know how long you expect to keep me for this role, but I can't do very much. I have a day job. I have Star Trek that I have to do. And he said, oh, we're going to kill principals on a regular basis, so we're not going to keep you very long. And lo and behold, three years later, I was still doing Buffy. I had a wonderful time doing Buffy. One, because there was no makeup. Two, because uh, Joss's writing, as well as the other writers, was so incredibly modern 
and idiosyncratic and lovely and delicious to speak. So that was great fun. Ironically, everybody in front of the camera, we were acting, everybody hated Snyder. Snyder was a despicable human being. What was ironic about that was that I had great friendships with the people when we rock him. And if I may share a quick story. Sure. When Buffy was shooting its last episode and, and Snyder was long gone from the set, the production office called me up and asked me if I would take a picture with the cast and crew on the last day of shooting. And I, of course, agreed to that. And I assumed from watching the show that there would be hundreds of recurring characters and lots of people there. And that's what I prepared for. When I got to the set, there were only four of us. We all knew each other. Uh, one of the guys I didn't know. He was from after my time on Buffy. And we said hello to all the people on the set. We caught up, warm hugs. As I'm walking back to my car, I'm walking with Joss Whedon. And I told him what I just told you. And I, I asked him, I said, I expected a lot of people. Why were there only four of us? And he said, because, Armin, you're the only four people that all of us liked. Bernie was, they all hated Snyder, but they all liked Arm. And, you know, Snyder is a great character to hate. He has one of the best deaths on the show. <laughs> a, a death I asked for, actually. Really? Yeah, because uh, my friend Kenny, who played Flutie, was eaten by a hyena. When I realized that they were moving on from the high school to college, they certainly didn't need the high school principal anymore. So I knew my days were numbered. I said to the powers that be, I want to be eaten. I want to, just like Flutie, I want to be eaten. And it's a lovely moment, you know, where I'm <laughs> facing the dragon and saying, this is my this is my campus, you, you have to get out of here. And then swoop, he takes a big gulp. And <laughs> it's a well-deserved death. A well-deserved death. <laughs> Other actors that I've spoken with that have appeared on Buffy, James Marsters and Harry Groner, your co-workers, say pretty much the same thing that you say about Joss's dialogue and his writing. Now, you've worked on a lot of TV shows did his writing really stand out that much to you as different from others? I mean, obviously, Bubby is successful, but so that's clearly something he's very good at. <laughs> yeah, what, what Joss and the others, Jane Esperson, Marty Nixon, what they were able to do was somehow catch the flavor of adolescent speak at the time that the show was airing. And that's what really caught my attention. You know, my bad has become part of my vernacular. I had never heard that until I was uh, on Buffy. Um, now, a lot of people use it, not just me. It was things like that, that you would hear something and go, oh my God, that's just how people speak. That's just how kids talk. I love the, the, the dialogue. I love the language. And I love the sort of morality plays that they were creating, especially when I was on the show. It got different after when they moved on to college. The idea that there was an invisible girl. Well, of course, when you're not liked in high school, you think you're invisible. Or even the relationship between Buffy and Angel. Angel's a vampire who could kill Buffy and take her life away from her. It's not that long a metaphor to think that a young girl who still is a virgin is terrified that her boyfriend may take her virginity from her and leave her less than what she was before, or that it might be painful, or she might be rejected, or in a sense killed off from his attention. I love those metaphors that they were able to transform from true teenage angst into fascinating TV episodes. Well said. Outside of Buffy and Star Trek, were you fans of any of the other shows that you became a part of? Yeah, I was a part of Boston Legal. Yeah, Boston Legal. And I was a huge fan of that. 
I had done a number of David Kelly shows, and so Boston Legal was the next one. Because Renee Aubergenois was a series regular on Boston Legal, I was watching it not only for Renee, but also for what David Kelly was writing. And I got the opportunity to work on Boston Legal, and that too was a fluke. Because I was a big fan, this is a story a little complicated, but try to stay with me on this. At that period in time, during Buffy and Star Trek and the others, I was a guest star. Guest stars get paid different amounts of money for being a guest star. Now, the union set a, a minimum, if we can call it that, for guest stars, where if you work one day or if you work eight days, you get the same amount of money. It's, it's not so good when you work the eight days, but it's great when you work the one day. <laughs> right. And a lot of times I was working one or two days and getting guest star money. Uh, the agent called and said, they want to use you on Boston Legal for one day. Now, in that year, the union had given to the producers the opportunity to change that formula so that you could get paid for one day, but not as much as you would for the eight day. And Boston Legal said, we only need him for one day, and we're not going to give him the full guest star weekly rate. We're going to give him a one-day rate. My agent wisely said to me, don't take it because you'll set a precedent that you don't want to have. And I was such a fan of Boston Legal that I said, no, I want to take it anyway. He said, this is not a good idea. We had a huge fight. But because I was the client, I got my way. Now, this is luck. My whole career, I told you earlier, I had the luck gland. I shot my one day. And while I was shooting it, in another part of the forest, David Kelly went into his writer's room and said, I want to change the th whole thrust of the show. I want to bring in a whole new group of people and have a trial, a long trial, that will focus on a whole bunch of different attorneys. And I want to write that myself. So that's what they were going to do. And he started looking around for the people who were going to populate this trial. The murder victim was a judge. The victim was married to another judge. David Kelly had decided that that the husband of the murder victim um, was going to be a short person. He had a, a casting call for that character. And lucky for me, he, he wasn't satisfied with the people he saw. He went to Daly's the next day and saw me as the judge in my one day's work in Boston Legal. And he was, David Kelly at that time was a fan of mine. And he said, Armin, Armin can play the judge. Armin can play the husband of the victim. And so they just said, we're not even going to change the judge's name. We'll keep you from the judge you played on that one performance and make you part of this new story. And I got, I believe, nine episodes out of it. After the second episode, they again paid me what's called top of the show, the full week salary for one day or two days. And not only that, David Kelly had a personal policy that after you had done, I believe, six shows for him of a, any particular TV show, he would on his own raise your salary in increments because you had become a, a major recurring character. So I did, I think, two, maybe three more episodes more than his personal policy. And I made a great deal more money than top of the show because of David Kelly. Much And so if I had listened to my agent, who gave me very good advice, none of that would have happened. And that, that whole story flows from the fact that you ever do a show that you were a fan of. So, yes. There you go. You mentioned earlier, Armin, that you're obviously you're a big fan of Star Trek. So you get the job on Star Trek and then you ended up appearing across three different series and, you know, major character 
just how did how did that feel you know as a fan to contribute to a universe that you're such a big fan of well, i always say i won the lottery the story i just told you about boston eagle sort of applies to my getting the first star trek on next generation but uh, again against my agent's wishes i took that first job on star trek which wasn't a ferengi which was a talking prop and the only reason i took it was that i was such a huge star trek fan that I agreed to do something that really had no character to do. It was just a talking prompt. That's all I was. But it led to the Ferengi and to Quark. But how did I feel? Blessed. I felt enormously lucky. Lucky is the only word I can tell you because it was like winning the lottery. Thousands of people auditioned for these parts. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and be the right size with large enough ears to be the one they chose. And the icing on the cake is that I got writers who appreciated not only what I was doing, but the potential for the character and wrote such incredibly good episodes and scenes for me that his popularity grew and grew. I think he grew larger than the writers and the producers ever wanted him to grow that much. After all, he wasn't Starfleet. He was outside, you know, the pale. But his popularity grew, and that's because I think because my writers just did such a good job with my character. I mean, yeah, now that I'm just think, thinking about your career, just between Josh Whedon and Brandon Braga, you know, two of the greatest television writers of all time. If I worked for Brandon Braga, maybe one episode. Maybe one? Gotcha. One, okay. I did Voyager. I did one episode of Voyager. Maybe he was involved in that. I don't think Brandon was involved with any of our Deep Space Nine episodes. And if he was, probably not one of uh, the Ferengi episodes, but possibly. I don't know for sure. But we, we had so many writers. Another long story, which I won't tell you about, somewhere in season three or four, you know, where the actors were introduced to the writers, we didn't know who was writing the show for the first three years. You've done a lot of voice work as well. Do you enjoy that mix-up of the medium? You know, Is it refreshing to try to bring a character to life just by your voice? Yeah, it, it's great, great fun to do voiceover work. One, you don't have to memorize lines. Two, you don't have to worry about blocking. Three, you don't have to worry about makeup. And four, usually the writing is over the top, wonderfully silly, at least the ones that I do. I have done serious ones as well, and, and one of them is some of the best work as an actor I ever got to do, which is on Bioshock. Oh, yeah, that, that's one of my favorite roles of yours. Andrew Ryan, I believe, was the name. Yeah, Andrew Ryan. And again... They just offered that to me. No, that's not true. I did audition, but I, I don't know what happened between that audition and getting the part. Voiceover work, when you do cartoons, for instance, you're in a room with a lot of zanies and you laugh for three hours. It's delicious. It's a shame they have to pay you also, you know, because you're having such a wonderful time. When you do game voiceovers, you're in a booth by yourself. Not as much fun, but much more focused. You are the focus of the work for three or four hours. And you have to be on your best game because you, you have to make choices incredibly fast. Most of the time, in my case anyway, I never see the script. So I walk into the booth. I don't know what I'm going to do. They may play back what I auditioned with to give me a sound of the voice. But I, usually I don't know what the background of, of the characters are, what the plot is about. And they feed you maybe one line, maybe two lines at a time. And you have to sort of make the right choices with someone looking over your shoulder to fulfill what they want. It, it's When I do those game voiceovers, I am thinking the fastest I am all month. 
because you, you really have to think very fast and try to give them what they want and still be creative in a moment's notice. To your point of uh, thinking on your toes, most folks who I speak with who do a lot of voice work say that improv is definitely almost a must. Uh, at least yeah. it's helped them a lot. I can understand where it may have helped them. Yes, I can understand that. I've never been an improv artist. I wish I were, but I'm not. And like on Star Trek, they want... For the most part, the ones that I've dealt with, they want it word for word. They want right. they want any uh, changes. You may suggest a change sometimes. Most of the times they'll say no. Sometimes you, you inadvertently say the wrong word and they come back and say, you know what? I like your word better because usually the writer's in part of the mix on the day that you're mm. there. And they may say, yes, let's do that. But most of the time they say, no, you, got, you said two instead of from. We have to go back and get a two. You have to do it again. So I can understand where... Thinking fast and improv are first cousins. I understand that. But for me, improv was never a part of my work. So, Armin, when you reflect over your career, you know, stage or screen, is there a role that stands out that was particularly challenging? Maybe one you lost sleep over, pulled your hair out over, something like that. Uh, I lose sleep over all the roles, at least all the stage roles, and certainly the TV roles. For the TV roles, I go back to what I said to you before. I, I never think that I'm, I've gotten the technique exactly right, so I fret over that. On stage, you have a month or more to sculpt your performance, and if you're not dreading how to do it better, then you're not really a very good actor, in my opinion. So I'm always fretting over them. Are, are there any ones that were harder than others? They're all hard. <laughs> They're all hard. I, I can't remember ever breezing through any anything. Maybe one you were more nervous for. Do you, how do you deal with nervousness? As a young man, I just muscled my way through it. As an old man, I'm going to say something I know I shouldn't. Sometimes I just take a little pharmaceutical help. <laughs> that works all the time. In the last 10 years or so, I've been doing that. But and that's usually just opening night, opening night, because the, the pressure in opening night is huge. And that just makes it, you know, bearable. It doesn't it doesn't make you high. It doesn't do anything like that. It just makes you a little bit more comfortable. Takes the edge off a little, maybe. Yeah. Some people drink. In my profession, a lot of people drink. Uh, however, I don't. I do on occasion, but I don't drink anywhere near as much as my fellow actors do. Multiple ways to skin a cat, you know, everybody's got their method. So this is something I like to ask everybody, Armin, because you never know what folks are going to say. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider paranormal or supernatural? Well, aside from that first acting experience, which was a little paranormal, coincidences, but they're not what you're asking about. No. So the answer is no. Uh, something where something that's unaccountable happens. <laughs> My career is unaccountable. <laughs> no. No, I don't think so. I'm a very practical, logical person. If I don't understand something, either I find out why I didn't understand it or just let it go. Well, what's the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? I don't know who gave it to me. It's standard procedure, standard advice in our business. Less is more. That's a really good piece of acting advice. There's one I'm very fond of. Years ago, my co-worker and dear, dear friend, Rene Aubergenois, and I were discussing acting. And I said, as I just said to you, I'm a very logical person. And I said to him, I make my choices, Rene, and they're like stones in a stream. And I plant the stones in the stream. And I carefully walk from stone to stone, getting across the, the stream. That is the analogy for my performance in any given piece of work. 
And Rene, wise man that he was, said, Armin, if you planted the stones and you know where they are, why are you stepping gingerly from stone to stone? Just run across them. Just run across them. You know they're there. Just run across them. That was excellent advice. I've been lucky enough to work with such incredibly good actors, especially, I may say so, on stage. On stage, I've worked with some of the princes of the American theater. And most of the time, they didn't give me advice. But I gleaned things from them just from the way they performed the way they approached rehearsal, the way they approached performance. And they were sort of role models. I picked and chose what in their behavior patterns that I liked, that I emulated, that I thought I would like to do that as well. Sometimes they had to do with acting, with how they approached roles. Sometimes it was just how they approached working in this Mm. business. Sometimes it's how they approached relationships in this business. Sometimes it was how they either accepted or didn't accept their celebrity or lack of celebrity. Both of them are a problem, and they are a problem. Celebrity can be a problem. I've been like Zelig. I've been in the right place at the right (laughs) time. No one's paying any attention to that short, balding guy over there in the corner, but he's watching you very carefully. (laughs) Who's been your favorite director to work with creatively or someone you could work with again you'd love to? There have been many, many wonderful, wonderful directors. There was a man, he's passed away. He was the first director that I was flabbergasted by, so I'll use him. He's a theater director. He was the artistic director of the Guthrie Theater for many years. His name is Garland Wright. And the reason why I liked him was... He was what was called an actor's director. He spent a great deal of time helping you flush out your character. And I remember working with him. I didn't have the most major character in the play, but he still spent a lot of time with me, as he had with the others, to give me the best performance I could, for which I was enormously grateful. And that alone would have made him in the top tier of my favorite director. But then I was sitting in technical rehearsal, where they take a great long time to light things. And in scenes that you're not in, you can watch what the other actors are doing very slowly. They're not performing, really. They're just sort of standing around and showing the lighting designers where they're going to be. And I had been in rehearsal for this play for about five or six weeks. And in the tech rehearsal, I suddenly realized the beautiful pictures that Garland had created. Now, usually, a director either makes beautiful pictures or he helps the actors. It's as rare as hen's teeth that they are able to do both. This is what Garner Wright was doing. And this was early on, this was in the early 80s when I was working for him. I was just gobsmacked at, at his talent. Just incredible. In TV, directors work very fast. They have to. The most mm-hmm. important piece of equipment on television set is the wristwatch. So I've worked with wonderful directors who were charming people. I don't know how good they were because they usually you don't get direction. On TV, you, you've done your audition. They chose you for that audition, and you, you repeat that for pretty much. On stage, I've worked with some wonderful directors. Some of them very famous, in fact. I would say Garland. Garland Wright's probably one of the top. Well said. Well, Armin, just to wrap up here, put a bow on everything. What's on the horizon for you? And give us the scoop on the uh, Illyria novels and where we can get them and when we can expect the third one. I will be directing a Shakespearean production next year, so that's on the horizon. I don't have any TV work uh, scheduled. The TV work always pops up, you know, in a moment's notice. You never know from time to time. Let's now go to the books. So the first book, Betrayal of Angels, came out in November the 5th of two years ago. And, and the second book, A Sea of Troubles, came out November the 5th last year. 
And the third book, Imbalance of Power, that one I do remember, will not come out on November the 5th. And the reason November the 5th, that's my birthday, but will be coming out January the 24th of 2023. I've gotten some very good notices about the books, and I'm very proud of the writing and of the story that I that I told. And if people are interested, there certainly is a pre-sale going on now, which you can go to Jumpmaster Press, which are the, the publishers of the books, jumpmasterpress.com. Look under either my name, Armin Shimmerman, or under Illyria, which is the title for the trilogy. And uh, you can pre-order a book for January. If you see this after January the 24th, 2023, you can certainly go to Jumpmaster Press. And, and if that's too much to remember, you can also go to my website, arminshimmerman.com, purchase the books there. There we go. Thank you, Armin. I'm definitely going to be checking them out for myself. Clearly, as you can see, it's up my alley. Thank you for giving me some of your time, man. It's been a pleasure getting a chance to chat with you. Thank you, Justin. The questions were really quite wonderful. Usually I get a lot of questions that I've answered several times, but I don't think any of yours have ever been asked me before. So thank you very much. I know you guys get a lot of interviews, so I try to at least make it somewhat interesting, you know. You did. You did. Thank you, Justin. Good luck. Uh, And let me know if you find out the date for John Dewey. I am. I'm going to look into that. I got this whole book right here for a reason. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Armin. As always... Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.